The following is a conversation I had with Dr. Eric Trexler. Dr. Trexler is an active researcher and coach. He is also the co-owner of Stronger by Science, Mass Research Review, and the Macro Factor AI coaching app. In this conversation, we talk about how Dr. Trexler got into research and bodybuilding, the efficacy of various supplements, including beetroot, metabolic adaptation and metabolic phenotypes, and the future of research in bodybuilding. If you like the podcast, please feel free to leave a review on your favorite listening service. If you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up, subscribe, and comment if you have any suggestions for questions on future episodes or future guests. I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast just as much as I enjoy conducting these interviews. Thanks for listening. Uh, I wanted to start and, and just ask how you got into all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, so growing up, I was um, really into football, uh, American football, if you've got uh, a lot of international listeners. And uh, I'm short. I'm not tall at all. I'm like maybe five, seven on a tall day. So it was really clear to me when I was really young, if you want to get on the field and see meaningful playing time, you're going to have to find an advantage. And so I would do a lot of training to, to try to say, okay, I'm not going to be the biggest, but if I could be the fastest and the strongest and really technically skilled, maybe that's, maybe that's going to be a viable avenue for me. So I got into resistance training because um, I was trying to do better at football. And I, I fell in love with training and started like it even more than the sport I was training for. And then, uh, you know, I'm walking around the hallway at school, like at that time, like five, five kind of little tiny ball of muscle, pretty lean. And the wrestling coaches were like, dude, you have to wrestle. Like, even if you suck, just you look like a wrestler. So now you're a wrestler. Uh, and that got me really into nutrition, you know, going through weight cutting and understanding how nutritional inputs, you know, start to really impact performance and physique related outcomes. So, yeah, I mean, by the time I was 16, I knew I wanted to be in, you know, sport, nutrition, training, performance, something like that. Um, you know, loved wrestling, but honestly just wasn't that good, um, you know, and so uh, between not being that good and having a lot of concussions, it was clear that I needed to find a different way to scratch that competitive itch and to stay connected to training and nutrition. And so when I was in college studying exercise science, I got into um, natural bodybuilding and powerlifting and, you know, not necessarily great at either, but good enough to kind of to kind of stay interested in it. Uh, while I was at Ohio State doing my undergrad, I got involved in some research really just because they made me. Um, I was in like the honors program and they said, well, if you want to graduate with honors, you have to do an undergrad research project. And I'm glad uh, that they had that requirement. At the time, I thought it was, you know, kind of a huge pain in the ass, but I fell in love with it. And, and so then I, I was planning to become a physical therapist, which would have been a terrific career. Uh, it's great work that physical therapists do, but I fell in love with research and I was like, I want to keep doing this uh, for the foreseeable future. So did a master's, did a PhD, and was really fortunate that I was in a lab where I could study what I loved. So uh, of course there were some projects I had to do them because it was what we were doing, you know, and you know, I, I didn't have like full autonomy, but you know, I got a, a chance to do some really cool projects that were highly relevant to bodybuilders and powerlifters. And I mean, some of those studies were actually in bodybuilders, which is pretty atypical. It's very hard to recruit and study bodybuilders in an academic setting. So uh, I guess the moral of the story is I started lifting when I was 12, fell in love with it and got really, really lucky about a hundred different times. Uh, people gave me opportunities I didn't deserve, uh, stuff worked out that shouldn't have. 
and ultimately i'm i'm here doing a bunch of really cool stuff that i love doing and and i think the the moral of the story is i love lifting and i'm really just full of gratitude because it's it's worked out uh pretty well to get me to a point where i can do what i love for a living which is great yeah yeah that, that's that's really huge and i think those are some values that that i share as well is is just um you know being being grateful for for the opportunities that have been presented but also being grateful for the opportunity that i've been able to um do the things that i love for a living and, and that's that's really cool that we share those things and um it's really cool that that you've been able to and, and have been presented those opportunities uh you know whether it be luck like you mentioned um but but it, but it is really awesome um what i was going to ask you about was your uh your research so you had done some research in uh, i believe supplements uh, when you were getting your PhD, correct? Would you mind yeah. touching on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I did my PhD in a lab that was really, really active in the supplement space. Um, my dissertation, like my main focal point with supplementation was on uh, citrulline malate and beetroot juice, which is a source of dietary nitrate. Um, so I was really interested in that because, I mean, when I, again, kind of coming back to the the ability to do what I what I really love and what really interests me. Uh, when I first got into lifting, nitric oxide boosters were kind of just becoming a huge thing. Like that was when uh, um, NO Explode was just getting really popular. And people were like, man, there's this new thing. It's called arginine and life is never going to be the same. And, you know, so it was really cool to be able to go back and, and kind of study some of the pre-workout ingredients that, that really were part of my process of falling in love with lifting, to be honest. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, we did research on citrulline and beetroot juice. We did research on uh, caffeine supplementation, creatine supplementation, and then just a huge mix of other things, pomegranate extract, uh, cordyceps, uh, you know, we did some uh, some different like uh, high molecular weight carbohydrate research, some protein research. I mean, we oh, wow. we really hit a, a really broad spectrum of supplementation. But I would say my focal points were creatine, caffeine, citrulline and beetroot. OK. And, and as far as I understand, those uh, supplements ha have been shown to have some efficacy, right? Those are uh, have some performance enhancing benefits, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, to varying degrees, you know, all four right. supplements have to kind of be, um, you know, separated out and, and kind of judged on their own. But yeah, uh, creatine, absolutely gold standard when it comes mm -hmm. to supplements for strength athletes, caffeine, pretty good. Uh, it's no creatine, but but it's it's a pretty reliable, pretty proven uh, ingredient. Citrulline malate. Um, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, the first few papers that came out were very positive, and that is a phenomenon that is somewhat common in research, is that the first few papers on anything, you tend to see more positive findings and some of the larger effect sizes that you're ever gonna see in that research. Hmm. And then a lot of times interventions will kind of come down to earth uh, as people start to study them more and publish more work. Uh, so with citrulline, the first few papers were very, very positive. And then there was this wave of papers that kind of reported neutral effects. And so people, you know, humans, we, we work, uh, our brain likes to tell stories and we like to tell narratives that uh, have a temporal component. So a lot of people kind of internalize that as we used to think citrulline worked, 
but then these new studies came out and clearly it doesn't. But of course, that's not the way we want to view it. You know, research doesn't really have that temporal component. One of the projects in my PhD was a meta-analysis where we combined all of the, the published research to date and uh, did a quantitative analysis of that pooled data. And what we found was a small to trivial effect size, but nonetheless, a statistically significant positive effect with citrulline when it came to strength and power outcomes. So it's kind of, in terms of the size of the effect, it's more of a caffeine than it is a creatine for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and then beetroot juice is very, very promising. There's not quite as many studies in the resistance training area. Uh, it's more studied for endurance related outcomes and the, the data in that area are, are quite, quite positive. Um, but there's also some emerging data indicating that beetroot juice and other sources of dietary nitrate are quite helpful with resistance training performance as well. So it's, uh, there's less data, but it looks, um, it looks to be quite equivalent or quite similar to citrulline malate if I were to kind of extrapolate into the future. I, I expect that we're going to see that those are, are quite similar in terms of their uh, magnitude of effect. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. I, I think I was using beet, beetroot for a while um, because I had heard about those effects. And then also uh, blood pressure was another thing that I heard might have some benefits as well. And I think that might be some of the reason why mm -hmm. it helps with um, some of these endurance um, outcomes and things like that as well. Um, I was yeah, going to ask yeah, you. So oh, good. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, the, the, the main, um, you know, when we talk about beetroot juice, we're talking about nitric oxide pr production. We're talking about uh, pretty notable effects on endothelial function, um, you know, on regulating uh, the vasculature vasodilation. And, and so, yeah, the, the effects on blood pressure are are very reliable, very straightforward. And, um, you know, you, you can, if you look at a group of folks who are hypertensive and, and you do uh, an intervention with a high enough dose, it's very, very common with beetroot to see a, a reduction in blood pressure. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really, really big because I feel like hyper, hypertension, I mean, maybe not as much in the resistance training community. Uh, enhanced side, you probably see that a little bit more, but that is something that um, can be an issue for people. So that that is kind of a... a benefit of that, that supplement. I wanted to uh, ask you if there were any other notable dietary supplements that were worth taking. Um, anything that you've come across that, that, uh, you know, is worth the money. Um, let's see. I mean, you know, worth the money is a very subjective thing that, that ultimately yes. comes down to the individual. Um, I mean, it's, it's a fair question, but I always like to, to mention that because, I try to, I, I used to like when, when I was first making supplement content outside of the research world, when I was making articles and podcasts and stuff, that is the question I would try to answer. Is it worth it? And I eventually stopped doing that because I noticed that to even answer that question, you have to say, well, worth it to who, what, you know, what's on the line, what's at stake. And what I try to do now is I try to describe you know, for a, a person in this situation with this type of outcome of interest, what effect size could they reliably expect to see? And then you take that information, you combine it with the cost of the supplement, and that's where you start to get an idea of, is it worth it to me for the type of exercise I do and for what I have on the line, what I have at stake? So for example, for most lifters, um, you know, beet root juice is an excellent supplement, but one of the issues there is that a lot of the products are really low quality. 
um, you know, the, the actual nitrate content of a lot of products on the market is really, really variable. Um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about massive, massive variation in the actual nitrate content. And so for a lot of folks, I say, well, if you're going to use a beetroot uh, product, like here's a couple that that seem to be pretty good, but they tend to be pretty expensive. And so if you're like a recreational lifter, no blood pressure issues, and you're just trying to get an extra couple reps in your workout, uh, you can have some interesting debates about how much those couple extra reps matter for hypertrophy. On it, it, That's the first part of the conversation. And then second of all, are they worth $2.50 a workout? You know, and so you start to get into scenarios where you'd say, does this supplement work? Yes. Is it worth it? Only to a select few of people who really are are willing to shell out some money for two more reps uh, on their last set of bench press. Um, you know, when it comes to the ones that are worth it to me, uh, for someone who doesn't have a lot on the line, who doesn't have like really high stakes with their training, I think creatine does well um, and, and is quite affordable uh, when there aren't like crazy supply chain shortages going on. Um, historically, it's been affordable, but the price has been really up and down with, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. Uh, caffeine is great uh, and it's like super cheap, but I, I usually don't even get it as a supplement. I just drink a lot of coffee and, and that works just fine. Uh, citrulline malate tends to be pretty affordable. And the nice thing about it is it's not a it's not hard to take. It's not like beta alanine where you have to take you know, one and a half or two grams at a time, several times throughout the day, like citrulline malate, you mix it in water, it actually tastes very good on its own. If you just mix it with like a like something sweet. So like, a, you know, there's like little like Mio water enhancers. Uh, citrulline malate naturally has like a nice sour flavor to it. So if you, you mix it with like a blue raspberry flavored water, you have this like sour blue raspberry that is absolutely incredible. So I actually, uh, Greg Schiltz is the dietitian for Stronger by Science on, on our coaching team. Uh -huh. uh, he's one of our two dietitians. He, he mentioned to me that he just drinks citrulline malate because he likes it. Like he's like, yeah, maybe it'll help with my training. Who, who knows? But it's, it's affordable and it tastes terrific if yeah. it's mixed with something sweet. Mm -hmm. um, so citrulline malate and creatine, I think, are affordable and for a lot of lifters, you know, kind of worth it. Uh, caffeine is in the same boat. And that's kind of my short list of things that are that kind of meet that combination of pretty reliable for performance and also uh, tend to be quite affordable. Um, and then okay. for people who are really doing specific, like um, if you're like a CrossFitter or you do a lot of strongman medleys, I think maybe for them, beta alanine might start to make sense. But for your typical bodybuilder, as more and more studies come out, I'm actually leaning further and further away from beta alanine. Um, I'm just increasingly less convinced that a typical bodybuilding program actually taxes the glycolytic energy system to a sufficient enough magnitude that beta alanine would be critically important. Um, you know, it looks like you really have to do stuff that really ramps up, uh, you know, uh, that, that glycolytic system, you know, you really start to accumulate those extra protons, you know, local pH really starts to dive, uh, outside of those contexts for the typical lifter, who's doing a set of 12, I'm just not sure if we're really, uh, physiologically in a position where a beta alanine is getting a, an opportunity to shine. Um, and yeah, like I said, with beetroot, uh, it's a nice supplement, but the really high quality ones tend to be relatively pricey. Um, so for a lot of the people I work with, it's usually 
it works, but it's usually not worth it. Okay. Yeah, I apologize. I framed that question like that. I think it is kind of an individual cost benefit that needs to occur um, based on the effect and then affordability and, and the, uh, you know, very various other factors as well. Um, I, I was going to ask, uh, you mentioned that beetroot, it's hard to get um, the proper dosing. Is Have you looked into any of the uh, supplements on the market and, um, you know, like uh, them not having um, in the proper ingredients in it. Like I, I know some of the fish oils uh, and maybe I'm incorrect on this, but some of the fish oils on the market may be oxidized and may not be of great quality. Is that something that we see across the, um, the, the supplements being sold? Like you, something you get on Amazon and is that something you've even looked into? Oh yeah. I've looked into it a lot. Um, Ooh, cool. Yeah. So you, you are correct about fish oil. Oxidation is a, a common issue. Um, so when you're buying fish oil, you have to be pretty uh, particular about how is it packaged? You know, is, is this a company that's cutting corners when it comes to the manufacturing and distribution? Um, when it comes to beetroot, um, I, it's very uh, common and appealing to kind of be really harsh on supplement companies and they've earned it. They, they deserve that. You know, like th there've been enough companies cutting enough corners that, uh, the, the negative reputation is broadly speaking deserved, but I do have, um, I can, I give them a pass a little bit with nitrate, um, when it comes to like beetroot extracts and, and their nitrate content. Cause that's what we're looking for is, do you have the amount of nitrate I'm looking for? That's why we're taking beetroot juice, uh, in almost all cases. And what's really interesting about, uh, nitrate content of vegetables is that it depends on a lot. Um, and so there was a study, uh, it's been too many years, I, I don't know the, the author names, but there was a study where supplements aside, they were just looking at conventional produce and they were just taking nitrate rich vegetables uh, off the shelf at grocery stores across the United States. You know, they, they were taking them from like, I think like Boston, Dallas, Los Angeles, you know, they took them for like five different regions and they tested the nitrate content of the vegetables. And it was wildly different from place to place because the nitrate content depends on the soil quality, oh, yeah. uh, how it was grown, how it was shipped and stored, how long it's been on the shelves. So even with conventional produce, it's very difficult to standardize nitrate content. And that just gets even worse when you work further down the, the chain and you get into the, uh, the extracts and the powders. So when I was working on my dissertation research and planning it, one of my challenges was I need to find a, a, a an actual product here that's reliable enough that I can use it for the study. At that time, there was a product called Beat It Sport, which is like a, a high nitrate shot. It comes like ready to drink as a little, like a two ounce shot. And um, it has 400 milligrams of nitrate per serving. It has reliably done quite well when it comes to third party testing for nitrate content. Uh, I've never made a dime from that company. Never, never will, uh, as far as I know, unless they want to send me some money. But uh, yeah, I don't have any relationship with them. But that's the product I use for my dissertation research because it had a good track record of third-party testing, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, it still seems to be kind of the go-to product in terms of just reliability of actually having the listed nitrate dose. And like I said, I wouldn't be shocked if some of the people making these products. Are, are underdosing the nitrate just because the raw materials they're getting just have very um, 
they have quite variable nitrate content before they even go into the manufacturing process. Yeah. And so, so is there a way to ensure like, like you sourced that beat it product, um, knowing that it had a, a good nitrate uh, content, is there a way like for the consumer to be able to, um, you know, find out if these products, uh, are dosed correctly, like, uh, maybe looking for products with third-party testing or something like that? Is, is there a reliable way to do that? Well, that's tricky because with third-party testing, there are different types of third-party testing. So, um, you know, you, you might see a label on a supplement that says, hey, this is third-party tested. But if you look into the details of the third-party testing program, sometimes all that means some third-party somebody to go audit the manufacturing facility and they just walked around and they said yep i don't see any yeah. rat poop uh it looks like you have all your documents and binders over there you're good to go um and, and so sometimes that's all the third party certification means uh sometimes it's hey we tested it for banned substances and we can say that this product doesn't contain banned substances does it actually contain what's on the label i don't know i can just tell you it doesn't have any banned substances there are some kind of higher tier third-party testing services that uh, that do go and actually test label claims, but I'm not sure of any that test specifically for nitrate content. So like they might dig around in the manufacturing process and figure out, did you actually use, you know, 1200 milligrams of the beetroot extract powder that you say you used in this formulation? I'm not certain if there are any that take an extra step and say, I don't care if you got 1200 milligrams of that powder and it was standard to X percent nitrate, we're going to actually test the nitrate. I'm really not certain if that exists. It very well could, but, but I'm not sure. Cool. Yeah. I was just kind of curious on that. Um, as far as like consumers being able to, um, source these products. So I wanted to get a little bit into, uh, something I think I've seen you talk a little bit about. And something that I was uh, becoming, I don't want to say concerned, but I definitely would, uh, to give background, I did my own contest prep this last year. And uh, as I was, uh, you know, making adjustments and even beforehand, I was looking into metabolic adaptation. Um, I, it was just something that, you know, it becomes very relevant when you are in a deficit uh, and more so for more people. Uh, but I'll have you talk about that a little bit. But I was just curious. Um, if you could kind of introduce the concept of metabolic adaptation and um, there's a couple things like uh, thrifty and spend thrift, those terms, I've, I think I first heard you say them. Uh, if you could define those terms too, because I find them very interesting. Sure. Well, first and most importantly, how did your contest prep go? Oh, well, well um, I ended up uh, winning my uh, local show and uh, qualifying for nationals. Then I went to the USA's and I placed eighth there. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit. Oh. I think my internet's being a little bit spotty. Yeah, it it sounds like well. you said you won a local show, qualified for nationals, and got eighth? Got eighth at the USA's, yeah, in Vegas. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, I've I would I've done one pro show as a natural, got absolutely stomped. And the idea of stepping on a national stage is absolutely horrifying. So to stand up there and get eighth is really, really impressive. So I appreciate that. Very, very glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, uh, metabolic adaptation. 
since you asked. Um, it's, you know, the reason I got into studying it is because I was actually coming right out of a prep when I started grad school. And I was like, hey, that sucked. I feel like shit. I'd love to learn why, <laughs> you know? And so, so that was really what got me into studying this stuff. And I've been doing it since like 2013, uh, approximately. So metabolic adaptation, anyone who's competed or dieted down, dieted down to like a kind of photo shoot ready or stage ready physique, you're going to hear this stuff and say, Oh, okay. So basically what happens is we start dieting and, you know, our, our body has no interest, you know, getting down to like 4% body fat or wherever we're trying to get for bodybuilding four five, 6%, whatever, whatever the case may be. And our, our body, uh, fortunately for our, for the survival of our species is quite resilient when it comes to underfeeding. And there are some adaptive, uh, processes that take place. So, you know, it's, it's not that we can be immune to starvation. That's obviously not the case, but our body has some levers that can pull to try to slow that process down. All right. So if you are starving in a famine, that's great news. If you're prepping for a bodybuilding show, that's just more friction. It's just, you know, the process is getting a little bit harder when you're trying to get down to super low body fat. And really what's happening is there's two stimuli that are kind of contributing to metabolic adaptation. One is being in a calorie deficit. The other is uh, losing fat mass over time and getting down to really low body fat levels. And what happens is in both of those contexts, we have reductions in a circulating hormone called leptin. Leptin feeds into the hypothalamus, which is a, a structure in the brain. Uh, and the hypothalamus kind of integrates signals about energy intake, energy expenditure, energy availability. The, the hypothalamus is integrating all that information and leptin is a key signal telling the hypothalamus how much energy there is to go around. So when we're prepping for a show, the hypothalamus gets the signal that leptin is very, very low. And it says, okay, that's not great, but let's see what we can do here to try to, um, to try to ease this process a little bit. So the hypothalamus is going to, you know, have many downstream effects. Usually when we're in this situation and we're going to broadly define this, uh, it's almost like a syndrome, like a collection of effects, um, that we'll call metabolic adaptation. It's dictated by the hypothalamus when energy availability, uh, both short-term and long-term, is quite low and we're going to see things like reduced energy expenditure uh you know both the resting component and the non-exercise activity component of energy expenditure uh those are going to go down we'll also see effects uh in a lot of different hormone cascades so a lot of them actually start at the hypothalamus and then there's you know two or three different structures that ultimately are involved in the production of a hormone uh so the hypothalamus is in, for, for a lot of these hormone cascades the kind of first stop when it, when it comes to de determining how much hormone to make. So we're gonna see downstream effects like reduced thyroid hormone, reduced testosterone, uh, reduced sex hormones in, in females as well, which often um, is observed in the form of um, the loss or the dysregulation of the menstrual cycle, a very, very common thing among female uh, physique athletes. Um, so all this stuff kind of wrapped up together is what we broadly could call metabolic adaptation. It's this reduction in energy expenditure and these hormonal effects that Im impact, uh, you know, sex hormones, thyroid hormone, and I should also mention ho uh, hunger and satiety hormones as well. So when you're at the end of a diet and you say, 
um, you know, for, for, especially for like a natural athlete who doesn't have any exogenous hormones coming in, you, you start to notice, okay, clearly I have low testosterone. Clearly my thyroid hormone is low. I'm always freezing no matter how hot it is outside. Um, I mean, even just funny things when I, I was working in the lab, when I, uh, prepped and, and did my, um, my pro debut and I got very, very, very lean for the show. Uh, I did poorly cause I just didn't have enough muscle, but I got very lean for the show. I was happy with the shape I got in, but people started to notice that even my posture at work was changing. Like I, I wouldn't sit up as straight in my chair and I certainly wouldn't fidget anymore. And that's because the body is, is really kind of making these completely subconscious adjustments to attenuate energy expenditure so that we're just trying to, trying to stop what appears to the hypothalamus as starvation. And so you mentioned the idea of thrifty and spendthrift, and those are terms that refer to metabolic phenotypes. Um, so it's kind of just like a, a cluster of physical characteristics that we can group together. Uh, so there's these two different opposing metabolic phenotypes. And what these phenotypes describe is basically how your body responds to overfeeding and underfeeding. Um, so someone who is thrifty, um, th that's a term that some people might recognize from completely different contexts. Usually people that are thrifty, uh, they, they do a lot of saving, you know, they're, they're quite, um, uh, like financially thrifty is someone who, who really saves a lot of money and doesn't overspend too much. Right. And so that, that's kind of the same thing with metabolic phenotypes, a thrifty phenotype, someone who has a thrifty phenotype, uh, when they start dieting their body ramps up metabolic adaptation uh, quite quite substantially because um, what they're trying to do is save as much energy as they can since there's not much to go around now someone with a thrifty phenotype also saves a lot of energy on the other side of the coin so if you overfeed someone and put someone with a thrifty metabolic phenotype in a huge energy surplus they're going to store fat quite easily and quite efficiently now the opposite of that is someone with a spendthrift phenotype now, these folks uh, in bodybuilding terms, we could say that they're lucky, right? Because when they start dating, they don't experience as much metabolic adaptation. So what that means is their energy expenditure is not going to drop as much when they're dieting down to a low body fat. So on one side, someone with a spend through a phenotype, you might look at them and say, you're so lucky, you know, you have less friction uh, when you're en route to getting really shredded. And that's true. Uh, but there is potentially a downside, which is that uh, spendthrift phenot uh, people with a spendthrift phenotype, when they overfeed, uh, they often find it very challenging to gain weight intentionally, and that is a big part of you know building is part of bodybuilding. Um, in, in the natural bodybuilding world, sometimes we get so fixated on getting really really lean that we forget that. Uh, but but it can be challenging. Someone with a spendthrift phenotype, we've seen studies where they do very controlled overfeeding studies in the laboratory. And so they know that these people are in a huge caloric surplus. And what happens is people with a spendthrift phenotype, they burn through the extra calories. Uh, so just as, as uh, the hypothalamus can dictate these reductions in expenditure, it can also ramp up uh, increases in energy expenditure that kind of burn off the, the, the caloric surplus and so, you know, you'll see studies where they take in a huge group of people, everyone gets overfed the same amount, and they're just feeding them a ton of extra calories. Some people gain several kilograms of fat, other people barely gain a pound, uh, and, and their energy expenditure is through the roof. 
Um, so that is the concept of metabolic phenotypes. And the last thing I'll mention there is that I presented them as a dichotomy, but it's really a spectrum, which means there are some people with a kind of thrifty metabolic phenotype or an extremely thrifty or kind of spendthrift or extremely spendthrift. And most people tend to fall in the middle, uh, which is what we typically see um, with any kind of biological characteristic that falls on a spectrum. Most people by definition are pretty average and that also applies to metabolic phenotypes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting concept. Um, what are some things, so I know you mentioned the hypothalamus is the, you know, sending out these signals and causing these adaptations. What are some things that, uh, happens? Like, for example, you said a spend thrift phenotype, um, sorry, I'm forgetting, uh, that they, uh, they will, will, it'll be hard for them to maybe gain weight. They'll, they'll have these compensations and expenditure. What are some of those, those compensations? Like, like, uh, I know fidgeting might be one of them, but maybe some other things. Yeah. I mean, usually what we see is just uh, a robust increase in resting energy expenditure and a robust increase in non-exercise activity. So like you said, just more fidgeting, um, you know, people who just kind of have a subconscious tendency to pace around the room rather than sitting stationary. So the, the same way that uh, someone with a thrifty phenotype when they're dieting, I mean, you, you've probably seen this, if not felt it, um, you know, when I'm prepping for a show, if I walk past my mailbox and I remember I didn't check the mail, I'm like, how, how bad could it be? No one needs me that bad. <laughs> you know, I'll check it in a week, whatever. Um, yeah. And yeah, but, but, you know, people that have kind of a spend through phenotype, there is a resting component where there's just kind of a, an intrinsic upregulation of energy expenditure, but there's also some of those kind of subconscious non-exercise activity alterations where they're fidgeting more, their posture is more active in the chair if they're sitting down and yeah, they, they kind of just bounce around the room a little bit, to be honest. Um, so, so it's really fascinating to see how the hypothalamus can integrate that information and make these adjustments in accordance with an individual's metabolic phenotype. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the neat is, is one of the major contributors is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So then there, I know that I've heard some other things like, and this is probably happens for either, but you know, you have less, um, less body mass, which I mean, probably still contributes to neat, but you also have less organ mass, uh, a few other things that might happen when you're uh, that deep into a diet. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the organ mass thing, there's been some really nuanced, very sophisticated analyses in the last few years that have kind of clarified the impact of organ mass because, uh, it, it, it's it's quite true that some of the earlier papers uh, quantifying metabolic adaptation probably have overstated the degree of true adaptation. You know, like you said, when someone loses body mass, that's a smaller person. They should not be burning as many calories throughout the day, right? So that's not adaptive. That's just part of being a smaller person. What we're interested in with metabolic adaptation is how much extra downregulation and energy expenditure is happening that we cannot explain based on changes in body mass. And that's where the organ mass thing comes into play is, you know, people in, in the fitness world talk about, oh, you should, you know, lift weights to build muscle because it burns more calories at rest. That's true. That, that's not a false statement. 
Um, sometimes it's overstated in terms of magnitude, but it's not a false statement. But what's really fascinating is people talk about muscle as if it's this energy burning metabolic machine at rest. And it's like, dude, have you heard of kidneys? Like, <laughs> like, I mean, kidneys, liver, heart, brain, they are absolutely tearing through energy at rest at a level that, that totally um, overshadows muscle. And so, yeah, those organs, especially when there's a, a considerable amount of weight loss happening or a person is getting very, very, very lean, those organs do uh, get smaller. You know, there's a reduction in organ tissue as well. And uh, there, there have been, like I said, very sophisticated analyses that say, hey, when we account for that, it's not that metabolic adaptation disappears, but the estimate gets smaller because when we, a lot of the early papers would just count fat free mass as if it's one thing. And for a lot, it makes sense to do that because unless you have, you know, essentially MRI or like really high quality imaging where you could go by, you know, go through organ by organ, it's usually not that practical to actually quantify the change in organ size. So it's kind of a question of methodology and, and quantification that, that, that makes it kind of like, I guess what I'm saying is I don't fault the early researchers for just going normalizing to total fat free mass, because in most contexts, it's just not going to be feasible to say, well, let's just go ahead and measure the volume or mass of every single organ in the body. I and mean, it's going to be very, very uh, time and labor and resource intensive to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's still um, something that can be a challenge in research uh, is just having measurement tools that can accurately assess these things. I think there are some measurement tools, as far as I know, I'm not a researcher, but as far as I've seen, some of these measurement tools can can have some of that noise and it can be difficult to, um, you know, differentiate or 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 sort out some of that noise uh, by the these measurement tools. And as, as time goes on, they get better and whatnot. But like, for example, like a, a DEXA scan uh, practically is one of the better measures, I guess, but it still has a, a certain amount of, of error associated with it, if I'm using the correct terminology. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a DEXA scan done during one of my preps um, just out, you know, out of curiosity. But a lot of the research I did, you know, one main area of research we had was supplement work. The other was body composition assessment. So, you know, I did you name it in the lab, you know, skin folds, underwater wing, DEXA, bod pod, BIS, BIA. I mean, we had the whole thing. And a lot of times we would measure with multiple and kind of compare uh, how well they do against one another. Uh, so I did the DEXA knowing full well the type of error that I should expect from it. But I mean, it was kind of silly, to be honest. I mean, even though it's, it is a very, very good option, uh, it still said that I was like 6% body fat when I was only maybe two thirds of the way through prep. I mean, I still had a considerable, I mean, I lost like 15 extra pounds after it said I was 6% body fat. And that's as a person who competes natural at like five, six, five, seven, right? So 15 pounds is not an insignificant amount of weight uh, at my body size. So, so yeah, I mean, even with DEXA, you're, you're not going to get individual organ masses and you're going to have a, a pretty considerable error rate as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for, I mean for a little anecdote, um, like I said, it's, it's hard to study bodybuilders. They, I mean, and I'm, I can say this as a bodybuilder and I'm sure you can relate some nerd in a lab coat says they want to mess around with everything you're doing seven days before a show. 
The answer is absolutely not, right? You don't want people to mess around with with how you're doing your peak week. You're not going to hand over any of those decisions. So it has to be observational in nature. But usually for shows, you're traveling in. You're only going to be in town for a day or two, right? And so then it's like, well, how could we even try to do a study where we're taking multiple measurements over time, right? And I mean, yeah, for me to do a study, I was based in Chapel Hill. I wanted to study bodybuilders. I kept trying and trying and trying to recruit in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Turns out it's not a bodybuilding hub. Who knew? <laughs> so I had to go down to Tampa. I had to fly to Tampa with my equipment. Um, and good luck going through security with a BIS machine that has all these red and blue and green wires sticking out. And they're like, what the hell is that? So I go down to Tampa. Um, very, very lucky to collaborate with some colleagues there. And still it was, it was a crazy process trying to do it. And, you know, you can't do anything too invasive. So we're doing body composition with ultrasound and half of these folks, because the the time windows are so narrow, they're coming in, they've already got their first coat uh, of their tanner on and I'm doing ultrasound. And you know that, I mean, you're, you're using a water soluble ultrasound gel and, you know, tans are getting smeared and it's, yeah, it, it's logistically a hell of a time to try to do bodybuilding research. And, you know, I fortunately going into it had done bodybuilding before I tried to do bodybuilding research for anyone else. I don't even know how, how yeah. it'd be doable. Honestly, Can you imagine, yeah. Someone who doesn't, who's never competed before walking into that blindly, like trying to maneuver, like you even had some idea and it was still challenging. Like someone who does no idea what's going on. They're like, yeah, it's it's no problem. You're fine. Just get on the table, do the thing. And this person's like, you know, depleted and like exhausted and and irritable. Yeah. I can imagine that's just really challenging. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it was just so different. It was so different. I mean, I, I had um, a couple people from my lab to help out. I think one person from my lab also came down to help out. Cause I mean, you know, we had to be really mindful of costs. Right. So I think, I think I could only go down with one other person and uh, they were not a bodybuilder and they were like, what world have we walked into? Like, this <laughs> is so, yeah, they, they were just like, compl- it was like just such a culture shock of like, what is happening here? And I mean, yeah, like normally when we do body comp assessments, you know, we're working with people who are, um, you know, there, there, there's um, kind of a, always a theme of, you know, being really, really respectful of like, if you're comfortable could you lift your shorts so that we could access this spot on your, on like the, the middle of your thigh. Right. And we're like lower quad, not, nothing too crazy, but the bodybuilders, we're just like, seriously, you can put your shirt on. It's, we don't need you to have your shirt. on. Yeah. <laughs> it was just such a culture shock for, from going from a kind of conventional body composition lab and then getting in, in there to measure bodybuilders. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and do you think that, um, I, I mean, I've seen as I've become more, um, you know, into the, the research and, and looking into, uh, you know, various researchers, uh, I've, I've been familiarized with some people who are actually doing a lot of work with bodybuilders. I think, uh, I, ha- I had, uh, Guillermo Escalante on, uh, and I mean, some of his colleagues that he interacts with a lot, like, uh, Chris Barricat and a few other people are actually working a lot with, with bodybuilders. Do you, do you think that, um, I mean, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of funding for, particular for body composition and and specifically for bodybuilding. Um, I guess what was my question around that? I guess, I mean, obviously it's very challenging and I mean, you work with a, a research review and probably conduct research more around that, but um, I guess, where do you see that field in like 10 years? If I know that's kind of a, not a great question, but 
if you could maybe no just... i i think it is a good question um and yeah i i saw that that you had guillermo on the show and you know you mentioned chris uh they are they are absolutely fantastic um i was just literally yesterday reading their their review paper about body recomposition uh and if people haven't read that yet it's an excellent excellent read uh, i think guillermo and chris are both authors on that paper they're doing terrific work we reviewed one of their studies in the mass research review a few months ago dr helms reviewed it mm -hmm. um I, i'm really happy that they're in the field um and actually guillermo headed up a, a certification course with the with uh nasm nasm yeah, and so I was really uh, excited. I contributed the cardio chapter to that, oh, awesome. um, but but Guillermo, Guillermo did a remarkable job putting that together. So, you know, your question about where do we go from here? Like you said, there's not a lot of funding, not a lot at all, but there are some questions that can be answered without a tremendous amount of funding. You know, I, I think it is feasible to do a small bodybuilding study for 